0: Hello, and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. We exist to see lives transformed through Jesus and are located in the heart of Surrey, BC, Canada. To find out more, visit us at horizonchurch.ca. We hope this message blesses and inspires you. We are continuing in our um, series on Revelation, seven churches of Revelation. And today we get to talk on the church in Pergamon. And uh, the reason and meaning for is doing a series like this is to explain and walk through these letters that were given to these seven churches. And side note, there's many, many more churches than just the seven. But these seven encapsulated all the issues that were happening within the church at the time. So it's to these seven, but it's to many more who were dealing with the same issues. But we go through this to explain and walk through. Um, and to share the revelance to life today and church today. It didn't just apply to the churches back then, it applies to us today as we walk out our Christian life and as we walk out um, what it is to be a church and a local church in the world today. Revelation means apocalypse. A prophetic revelation, especially concerning a cataclysm in which the forces of good permanently triumph over the forces of evil. It's end times, yes, but it's different than the end times that we may think of um, being influenced by culture today. It's not dark. It's not like the world is ending. It's not the zombies. It's not like the world goes to chaos, but it's a picture and a revelation of how Jesus has won. It's a revelation of who Jesus is an unveiling of everything that he is, but then everything that he is to us. The book is Jesus. It's a revelation by Jesus, but it's also a revelation of Jesus. I think it's very important to note that as we walk through this book and interpret all the poetic imagery, I emphasize that, poetic imagery, not all of it is actually happening. It's describing and portraying the things of Jesus, to see in the light that it's a description of who Jesus is. Pastor Daniel started this a couple weeks ago, starting our first city Ephesus, in the church of Ephesus, and how it was one who had lost its first love, meaning you can do all the right things, but you do it the wrong way, and therefore you miss the point of everything. And then Pastor Mike walked through Smyrna last week, and how you will go through trials and tribulations, but it's not a life sentence. Jesus then comes to comfort and say, it's for a season. You can get through this. It's going to end. And I'm here to walk you through that. And today we're gonna talk on the church of Pergamum. And our scripture here is in Revelations 2, 12 to 17. And it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, or in Galatians, however you would prefer to say that. There's an ongoing debate over this. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So we're going to jump into this. Now, just a footnote here, there's so much information here. It's kind of like when you have like your computer or your phone and you have an update and you're like, okay, I need to do an update. It's like, it's going to be six hours long. Okay, great. This isn't going to be six hours long. That's not what I'm saying here. But it walks you through, you're 30% there, you're 40% there. And when it's done, it tells you, great, you have these 30 new features that you didn't have before and all features and skills and everything. You're like, wonderful. You're telling me this is version two. I didn't know I had version one. Cool. So this is going to be a download of information that you're going to receive. We're going to pin it up here for a minute because it will all make sense in the end of it. but it's going to be a lot to walk through in describing the city of Pergamum and the church that we're in right now. But let's dive in. Pergamum was a population of 190,000. was 65 miles north of Smyrna but they exceeded its southern neighbor in love for and loyalty for the Roman Empire. This was a city that loved to tell its leaders how much they loved them. We may know some people like that, you know, maybe. (laughs) We're here, we're loyal, we're faithful, we'll do anything for you. We did all these things, look what we did. They loved to tell how much they loved. Pergamon was one of the few cities to which Rome had given the right of the sword and this meaning the power to inflict capital punishment. Pin that up there for later. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It held high honor, not just in political and economical achievements, but also in religion. It was the center of worship for four of the most important pagan cults of the day, and it also was the center of Caesar worship. In 29 BC, the city sought and won permission to build the first temple in honor of Caesar Augustus. Again, we love you. Look what we did for you. We built this for you. (laughs) Therefore, because of that, the city held great power over its people for who they worshiped. The four cults that were represented in Pergamum were Zeus, Athene, Dionysus, and Esclepios. That's how you pronounce it, it is. I promise. <laughs> um, but Zeus being one of the greatest of these, Zeus was considered the, the Greek God of all gods. He was sky and thunder, he was, he was the main guy. But the city was famous for its magnificent library. The people of Pergamum loved words. They loved wisdom, they loved knowledge, they, they loved ideas. And so they had one of the most majestic libraries in this city. The city was built on a high rock and on a hill above it was overwhelmed with temples. Now, pagan culture meant many gods representing many different things, basically the more the merrier. And you kind of got to choose, oh, I want this one or I want this one. That was pretty much the synopsis of paganism. that, paganism is that you get to choose what God you wanna serve and therefore you get to receive the power that that God had. So many different temples scattered across. There were two, Prominent temples that could be seen from afar, and this temple was a temple of Escle. I can do this. Esclepios, <laughs> which is the god of healing, considered the first physician of the time, and Zeus, the god, the Greek god of, of all things, the greatest of great gods. The altar for Zeus was built 800 feet above the streets, and was 20 feet high and 90 feet square. The temple and the altar dominated the city and everyone living in it. Everyone in the city lived underneath the shadow of the altar. This could be seen from far away, and those who lived around it could only live under it. It was a symbol of the power that held captive the minds of the city, from politics to medicine to religion. This altar had a nickname all across Rome. It was called Satan's throne. Now, if this altar has a nickname of Satan's throne, and in our scripture that we read back in Revelations, Jesus says where Satan has his throne, and where Satan lives, we can then deduce process of elimination that this is a very important city for the enemy. So much so that you could say he he built everything. He has landed here on earth. This is his starting point and where he goes out from. Could you imagine a team meeting before the churches have been planting, and Jesus, he's like sending everyone out, all the pastors and everything. You group, you're gonna go to Ephesus. It's gonna be big, it's gonna be magical. You'll do some mistakes, you'll be fine though. It's gonna be great. You over here, Smyrna, you're gonna you're gonna go there. You're gonna have some trials and tribulations, but it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be fine. You over here, i uh, putting you in Pergamum. Okay, cool, and walks away. I'd be like, um, Jesus? You just described to us this, this is Satan's throne, kind of where he lives, kind of where he's, his domain is. And that's where you want, no, you didn't. No, that's a mistake. We'll go somewhere else. Tell us where you want us to go. Pergamum. Yeah, okay, okay. We're gonna go plant, we're gonna go plant in Pergamum. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> to, to be in that meeting would be amazing. But it's a fact, it's just an amazing fact that, that there was a church that existed in this city and it's a testament to the power of the gospel. It should not have been there and it should not have thrived, but it was. And so now we are We know the background of the city and we're gonna go into the background of the church at the time. And I think it's very important to note how Jesus addresses each church in each letter. If we go back to Ephesus, it says, I know your deeds. I know the things that you have done. And in Smyrna, I know the afflictions and the poverty that you've gone through. I know. But then in here, it says, I know where you dwell. This meaning, Jesus speaking, I know where I've put you. This doesn't escape me. I know the things that you're battling. I know the persecutions you're struggling with. I know the things that are surrounding you and trying to knock down on your door. I know where I placed you. This doesn't go amiss. And this is a reflection. When we go back to the beginning of Revelation where it talks about the seven lampstands representing the seven churches. And here it says, like a son of man, he sits among us. We get to serve a God who's not watching from afar, who's not idly uninvolved in our affairs. He's one that's planted next to us through everything. And so when he says, I know where you dwell, it brings comfort to me that wherever I'm at, even in this day, God, you put me here for a reason. It wasn't just a random, I'm gonna plant you here. I'm not really sure what's going on in the city. I'm not really sure what the political status is. No, he knew everything that was gonna happen here. He said, no, you're gonna go here and you're gonna thrive because I'm gonna be there with you in the trenches. I know. He recognized that this church would be one that was greatly threatened by pagan influence and that there was a battle going on. A battle, but not one that we would assume right away. Not a force, not of might, but a battle of the mind. Scholar John Stott, nope, butchered that, says this about Pergamum. Here a pitched battle was being fought in which the soldiers were not men, but ideas. They were engaged in the battle of the mind, not with our fists, with our mind. The war on Pergamon was being waged on two fronts. Ideas that conflicted with God's revelation in Jesus Christ were bombarding the church from the outside. But then there were ideas that conflict with God's revelation in Jesus Christ pressuring the church from the inside. Under overt attack from the outside and under covert pressure from the inside. But Jesus says this, you remain true to my name you did not renounce your faith in me. This is our outward fortress. We have stood firm on that. We have not collapsed. We have stood our ground. We have said, Jesus, you are God. We are following you. We have stood there. However, he continues in the scriptures and says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, committed sexual immorality. Jesus knew that they were holding fast on the front lines, but they were losing ground on the covert pressures from the inside. Daryl Johnson says this in his book. Daniel referenced this book when he was teaching in Ephesus. Discipleship on the Edge says they were standing firm against the overt pressure of the pagan city, but they were either unaware or carelessly tolerant to the covert pressure coming from within. The Christian fellowship. The church was being vigilant on the front line, but allowing a Trojan horse in the midst. And just like Daniel walked through in Ephesus, that the, the church of Ephesus was guilty of elevating truth above love, we can say that Pergamum elevated love above truth. Their commitment to love and tolerance had apparently degenerated into a weak sentimentality and threatened the theological purity of the church. The tolerance that was being allowed was then jeopardizing the foundations of the church. Whether unaware or just carelessly, it's, it's not that big a deal, it's fine. We don't need to worry about that. It allowed and tolerated other ideas to come into the church and make itself a home. The church compromised. The people compromised the truth that they knew of for something else. Jesus desires not merely that we love him and suffer for him, but that we believe in him and hold the truth about him with relentless conviction. These fundamental truths cannot be compromised. We cannot as Christian fellowship, emphasize Christian fellowship, not fellowship with the world, not fellowship in any other way, specifically in Christian fellowship. We cannot have Christian fellowship with those who deny the divinity of Christ's person or the sufficiency of his work on the cross for our salvation. It just doesn't work. We walk further down in our scripture on the condemnation part that Jesus discusses. Jesus is profoundly concerned with the preservation and propagation of truth. That is in fact the main theme of the letter that he's giving to Pergamon. There is reason for the language and imagery that Jesus uses in there. You may think this is odd, two-edged sword. Okay, that's a little bit aggressive. Like, I will come to you and fight against them with words on my mouth. Okay. No, there's reasoning for the language and imagery that he chose here. Because it's a battle of the mind, of ideas, and truth. Why is Jesus so aggressive in his language? Because he greatly cares about the preservation of truth. And maybe it's not a coincidence that Pergamum The city was allowed uh, the power of capital punishment by sword. And in that same way, Jesus comes in scripture and says, okay, I'm coming at you with a sword, but my sword is gonna be greater. And my sword is gonna conquer you. Why is Jesus so passionately intolerant when it comes to truth? First of all, he is truth. He speaks truth and he loves truth. But also he knows that falsehood and deception of any kind enslaves people jesus is passionately intolerant because he is passionately intolerant to people who are enslaved this is what grieves him the most and we see that previously in the scripture when people were his people were enslaved that's what grieves him the most when people are imprisoned by false ideas false presuppositions about the world ourselves and god so it says in john eight thirty two. That you may know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is a revelation of Jesus right here. That Jesus is one who cares and comes to fight for his people and their freedom. That I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's going to come fight for us in any situation that we're in. He's not idly standing by and watching from afar. He is in the thick of it fighting with us. But let's take a deeper look at the issues that he's brought up to this church here. Idolatry, mostly meaning when eating food that has been sacrificed to another God. And he mentions the teachings of Balaam and Balak. So we're gonna go back into Numbers, Numbers 22 to 24. And this is a description. We have the children of Israel. They've come, they're about to go to the promised land. They're on the Jordan River and they're camping. They're camping in Moab right now. And it's, it's a city that's owned by someone, King Moab. And he doesn't share very well. He really doesn't like sharing. So he saw them make a camp and he's like, well, I'm not gonna stand for this. I don't like this, but they're really strong. So I can't overtake them. Hmm, I know what I'm gonna do. I've heard of this guy, Balaam. I'm gonna summon him and he's gonna curse them and they're gonna weaken and then I can conquer them and they can get them out. That's my plan. So he summons Balaam and he says, hey, here's my plan. I need you to curse some people. Now, Balaam was kind of, he was an interesting person. He was a prophet, but he was kind of like a shady prophet. Meaning shady that he just, yes, he heard words from God. Yes, God gave him prophecies and he spoke them, but his heart was not with God. He was easily manipulated and controlled by whatever financial gain or status or any of that sort, he would be swayed. His heart was not right with God. But a weird thing was he could not say things if God did not want him to. So he told Balak Balak this, Balak, come curse these people. I want you to come here. And was like, "I, I can't, like, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna work. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. I need your help. Come here. So finally he did. Finally he goes to the city of Moab and he tries. He has the words, they're in his head. Okay, I'm gonna curse them. And out he opens his mouth, blessing. He tried. And previously he did ask God, God, can I curse them? And God's like, no, Uh, okay. And then goes away for a little while and then comes back. He's like, can I curse them now? No, okay. So he tries once, open his mouth, blessing. Infuriates Balak, tries again, blessing. Tries a third time, opens his mouth, all that comes out, blessing, blessing, blessing. He tries so very hard to curse these people, but all that comes out is blessing. This infuriates the king. He's like, well, you're useless. I'm not going to reward you for anything. You're not going to get all the things that I promised you. Please leave. Well, that just infuriated Balaam. He wasn't happy about that at all. So then we walk through and we hear of a plague that hits the Israelites at that time. Okay, okay, that's kind of weird. Like we just kind of move on. Nope. Later, down the road, Numbers 31:16 it says, they, meeting the Moabites, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the pure incident. That meaning they came, they partake in a feast was sacrifice to a God. So that the plague struck the Lord's people. Balaam couldn't curse. He could only bless, but he could advise on the sidelines. He could say things. He could say, you know what? You know what we could work here? is that if you tell them, you do this, it's not gonna change anything between you and God. Doing this, eating this meat, sleeping with these people, it's just, it's just meat, it's just stone, it's just wood, it's just whatever, it's just a person, it's just your body. You get to do it, decide what you want to do. It's not gonna affect your relationship with God. That's where he went about it saying, convince them that it doesn't change anything. Then they will be able to be defeated. Because of the actions of the Moabites, then therefore the actions of the Israelites, there was disobedience, and then there was a plague put on the Israelites, which resulted in 24,000 Israelites perishing. Balaam sold his soul for financial gain and didn't care that the price was to convince the people of Israel that they could do things and still live in line with God's commands. That's the main part of this scripture in Revelation is warning of the things that have slipped in that are telling you it's okay. It's okay to do that. No, don't worry about that. You're covered. You're covered. You're, you're the children of Israel. You're fine. It's okay. That's their main goal here. Later in the New Testament, they're called the Nicolaitans. Group of people in the early church said to be led by a deacon named Nicholas who were in charge of the affairs of the early church. They were in the church, not out not out and about. These people were in the church, inside the front lines. It's easy sometimes to spot the things that are coming out you from back there because they're charging it. You're like, okay, I got this. I put my forces up. But when it's inside, sometimes it's a lot harder to detect those things. So as this group, of members of the early church, part of the church convincing Christians that idolatry and partaking in meat sacrifice to their gods and sexual immorality, not a sin and won't affect anything with your relationship with God. That was their biggest weapon. It's not gonna affect anything, it doesn't change a thing. So do it, so let's do it. But there's meaning behind it. And as we look at our first issue, eating sacrifice meat, People in that day would bring an animal to the temple of their favorite God. Part of that animal would be offered to the God and part would be given back to the worshiper so that they could hold a sacred feast in honor of that God. Their argument is, look, idols are made of wood and stone. Like, no, no inherent reality. It's fine, they are just wood and stone. So what is the harm in partaking in a feast? Participating in a feast is not a neutral act, but that is what they were trying to convince people. It's just an act. In both Jewish and Gentile culture, eating a meal carried so much more weight than it does today. Eating and drinking at someone's table creates a bond of mutual loyalty. It's the start of a covenant. Something has been exchanged, something is happening. It's not just a neutral act. When a meal was held in honor of a God, the God was a guest at the feast. Therefore, a bond was created between man and that God. The wood is wood, and the stone is stone, and the meat is meat. This is true. But when you eat at the table of an idolatrous banquet, something spiritual is happening. Something underneath the surface is happening. Yes, the idol is nothing. But behind the idol, associated with the idol, lays the presence and authority of an unseen spiritual force. It's not a neutral act. There's so much more under the surface that happens. There's so much more than meets the eye when it comes to this. Biblical scholar C.K. Barrett says this about idolatry. It was evil primarily because it robbed the true God of the glory due to him alone. But it was also evil because it meant that the person engaged in his spiritual act, directing his worship towards something other than the one true God, was brought into intimate relation with the lower, the evil spiritual powers. It takes away from what was intended for God. Nothing's happening. It's fine. Where is your attention right now? Where are your eyes? What are you looking at? Where, where's the focus? Where's Where are the words going to? It's not going to God right now because you're at a feast for someone else. It takes the glory away that was intended for him. And we walk through the second issue, sp- sexual immorality. And here's their argument. Here's Valam's argument, then the Galatians' argument. It's the idea that your body is just a body built up of cells and organs And you can do whatever you want with it and it doesn't change anything about you as a person. It doesn't change the inside. The word for body used in the New Testament is soma. The soma is not only the material form, it is also the imperishable form of the personality. The soma is the real self, is the whole self. Humans don't have a soma, we are a soma. I I do not have a body. I am a body. It is not a prison or a house or a shell for my real self. My body is my real self. Therefore, what I do with my body, I do to me. What I do to my body, I do to me. There's an exchange. There's something deeper that happens. Even though my body may be the outer and my soul is the inner, it's the same self. And that's what it comes down to it, that there's no no such thing as casual sex. Many people have debated this, have argued this. No, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. No one can go to bed with somebody and leave their soul at the door. There's an exchange. There's something that's happening underneath the surface, something that can't be seen, but God knows it's there. You share your whole self. And that is what these false teachers misunderstood. They are trying to convince the church, the churches, but specifically the church of Pergamum, that it doesn't matter. You're allowed to do whatever. You are covered by, by the grace of God. You have been baptized. You have eaten at his table. Anything you do doesn't conflict with your relationship with God. You can do whatever you want but they failed to realize what was happening underneath. That the attention, the glory that was intended for God goes to someone else. That our whole selves, we are our whole selves. What we do to my body, I do to me. So how do we relay this to this day? Great, that was back then. We talked about idols and sexual immorality. Like, do we have idols here now? Well, how did these teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans get through the front door of the church of The same way they get in today. They're wrapped in biblical religious wording of the gospel. See, these teachers knew enough of everything. They knew enough of what God was asking. They knew enough of how Christians were to follow. They knew the overarching. They knew enough that they could twist the words inside just a little bit so that we wouldn't notice. That we would be unaware of the things that were being compromised inside of us. That we would be unaware of the things that maybe we're tolerating or making excuses for. You see, they did not outwardly deny Jesus or renounce their faith. They would use words like, you belong to Jesus already. How can you get hurt? You've been baptized, eaten from the Lord's table, and nothing can affect you. You can do what you want. They would even throw scripture at it. Romans 5:21, where sin is increased, grace superabounded. So sin away, let grace abound. Like they would use that word and you'd be like, "It's okay. Look, you're covered. It's fine." But their position reflects a misunderstanding about God's grace. Daryl Johnson says this in his book that grace does not protect us when we willfully choose to disobey. We can get hurt. It is more than wood. It is more than stone. It is more than flesh and blood. There is more that is happening underneath the surface here. When we compromise, when we tolerate things, there's more that's happening. If you want to call it irony or coincidence, later in the scripture, Balaam was in a battle and he was uh, killed by a sword. Jesus comes. He fights for us. And here specifically, he comes to fight with the sword of his mouth. And Balaam tried to influence that and twist it. And that's just the comical part, I think, of what Jesus was trying to explain. But the good news, the good news is this, that we have a God that fights for us. We have a God who intervenes in our situation. He knows. I know where you dwell. I know what you're going through. I know where I've put you. I know the persecutions. I know where you live. But one thing that I ask of you, repent. The meaning of repent means to stop, turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the wrong direction. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The truth about grace is it forgives us when we repent again and again. But grace also transforms us. Grace begins the process of repentance, of us turning around and becoming like the Holy One. Elena, if you want to jump on the keys. He's coming to fight for us. He's coming to fight in this battle, saying, you've done well, you have done well, but here's some things that I'm gonna see. I'm seeing that are gonna trip you up. These things are gonna trip you up because you know what? What we compromise and what we tolerate will only grow. It won't stay where it started. You see weed in a garden, you just see one weed and you're like, okay, you're not gonna do any harm. You're just one. i am just kind of leave you alone. Like you're fine where you are. Weeds multiply. Weeds make friends and pretty soon they've taken over the whole garden, not just taken over They start to compress what the garden was intended for. The original purpose is now being compressed. What you allow, what you compromise on, what you tolerate will only grow and then it will enslave you. And Jesus is not about that. Jesus is about freeing his people and he is there for us. But here's what we can respond to here. Besides, this is a great thought. What are we doing? There's more to it. And it's asking yourself, what if I compromise? These are examples, idolatry, and sexual immorality. But it covers a whole thing of what Trojan wars have we allowed into ourselves that's not growing. And maybe a lot are unaware, but some of us were aware. And we've ignored it. When the Holy Spirit has come and convicted us and saying, hey, this isn't an issue, be like, no, no, it's fine. Jesus said it was fine, so we're not gonna talk about that. And we let it grow, but we ignore it. Our response is to repent. God, show me where I've compromised. God, show me where I've tolerated God showed me where I've made excuses for the sin in my life and not stopped, turn around, and followed you. This breaks my heart. Because when I say, God, show me the things that I've tolerated, show me the things that I've just let exist, How does that make him feel? God, I love you. Do you? What about these things? I don't wanna talk about those things. Okay, but I need to talk about these things. Why do you need to talk about those things? Because those things are growing inside of you and pretty soon they're gonna overtake you and then they're gonna enslave you. And yes, I will come and yes, I will fight for you every single time, but I need you to stand and I need you to do something for me. I need you to become aware of how these things grow. I need you to become aware of how they overtake you. I need you to become aware of how they influence you, how you live in the world right now. Because the world has changed. And you walk out that door and there's so many things coming at you. There's so many things trying to attack and tear down the walls and try and influence and try saying, you can do this, you can do this, it's fine, it's not gonna affect you. But then there's the things that are inside of us that we've compromised, that we have allowed to take root. They were there quietly, but now they grow. Now they change our perspective of God. Now they take the glory that was intended for Him and it's focused on something else. It may not be other gods, but it may be an idol of something in our lives that we put our focus on. And therefore we don't pay attention to God. So we're gonna take a few moments today in prayer and only the Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit can do. And he can touch on things in your life and say, hey, this is something that's been compromised. This is something that's been tolerated. And this is not good for you. And we'll take a moment and repent. But I don't wanna name things. I don't wanna say, it could be this, it could be that, cause I don't want that you to, th-. or maybe that's it. I really want the Holy Spirit to trigger things in you. Because he says, you have been faithful. You have been faithful. You have not renounced my name. You have stood fast. But here's some things that gotta change. So let's just close our eyes for a moment here. So Father God, I ask that in this moment, 30 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever it is, God, as we just sit here, God, that you would drop things in our hearts. You would put a stirring in our hearts of ideas, of words, of anything that has been tolerated. That's not of you. That we've come to believe we can just get away with. And I speak this to myself and it may connect with anyone else, but even comfortability. God, I don't, I don't want to think about that because I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable where I'm at. I'm comfortable in the compromise that I've established in my life that maybe it's not outward or I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, but I'm comfortable in my compromise. Jesus, that you would pinpoint in hearts right now where there has been tolerance, where there has been allowance, where things have grown. God, I ask that you make us so aware of these things. But then in that same way, I ask that you come in, you come in with your sword and you fight for us. And then we stop and turn around and walk towards you in that moment. God, that we repent for the things that we've allowed just to sit in our lives. But then also we turn around and we walk in your warm embrace of grace, knowing that you are there You are there when we repent and we turn around. Just take 30 seconds. Jesus, I pray that you would bring the comfort of your love in this moment, whether it was unaware or carelessly tolerated, that you have open and loving arms waiting for your people to come back. You are a loving God that fights for us, for our freedom. In your name, amen. A way, just how I'm gonna end this is, if you thought of something, if something is on your heart, that's great, it can stay between you and God, but sometimes a way to activate this is to share it with someone, to utilize the Christian fellowship. Say, hey, this is something I struggled with, but I don't wanna compromise this anymore. I don't wanna allow this to grow in my life anymore. Now you know, and that kinda of just puts more permanent, more pressure, more, it's time. It's time to turn that around. We hope you enjoyed this message from Horizon Church. To find your next step, visit horizonfam.ca. Have a great week.